Welcome back to Streamageddon, the TV and streaming podcast that vaunts to suck various parts of your body if you're watching the show. We're watching this week. I'm Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the internet uh, by Myla Stott, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Wow, I'm thrilled to be Lestat. Uh, or should I not be? Oh, who knows? <laughs> we will find out later in this episode when we review Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire, the series, not the movie, the series that airs on AMC and AMC+. Plus. It's spooky season! Spooky season! So vampires, gay, gay vampires, the spookiest thing of all. It's a fun show. I'm excited to discuss more. Me too. And if you are also excited, good news, it's coming up soon. But first, we have some very important breaking follow-up about you-know-what. What else would we be talking about this week but the torrent of Netflix news? Last week, we recorded just in time to tell you the details of Netflix's upcoming ad-supported tier, which I love to call Basic with Ads, because that's what they call it, too. Uh, Are you still feeling Basic with Ads, Diane? I am. I am. Uh, November 3rd, that'll be coming out for uh, Netflix users in the U.S. So, you know, sign on board, friends. Join, sign, sign join up, Netflix. whether you want to or not, because after we recorded, the Netflix news just kept coming. So I believe uh, Monday of that week, uh, the day before our episode came out, Netflix announced their uh, account transfer tool or profile transfer, I think they're calling it, which is one of the many, many things they've been piloting in Latin America. And guess what? It must be a hit for Netflix and their uh, financial bean counters because they are excited to tell you that if you're ready to voluntarily stop password sharing, there is an amazing new profile transfer tool that will let you keep all of those sweet little algorithmic recommendations that uh, just tell you you to watch Dahmer, apparently. Oh, creepy, creepy. Spooky season is here indeed. Truly. And if that isn't blood chilling enough, great news in their uh, Q3 financial uh, call, you know, the the, the money talk. When they did the money talk uh, this quarter, they revealed that they are super ready to begin this password uh, sharing crackdown in 2023 in their biggest markets, the U.S. and Canada. It's just uh, so wonderful. I am. It's spooky in so many ways. Will I ever be able to watch a Netflix show again without paying my own money? What a horrible time to be alive. (laughs) Agreed. Though hopefully they'll have uh, some success with this ad sharing first so they can say, look, it's not it's not so bad to have your new account or will it be? A sub account. There are so Uh, many questions here. A new home. So so I did a little uh, research through our, our previous link history here to, to just collate all of the different tests they've been doing. So they have the profile transfer, which is something they tested in Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru. And in those countries, they also tested the idea of sub-accounts, where if they suspected that you were a password sharer, you would get a warm and friendly prompt to consider adding a sub-account to your account. So not a wholly separate account. Account, but you're paying extra for the privilege of having people uh, mooching off of you, essentially. Uh, so that was a test in those countries. But in other countries, they decided to let you purchase an additional home. So in uh, 
Argentina, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and the Dominican Republic, you could buy an additional home for streaming outside your household. And that is similar to the idea of a sub-account, but the details were different. And there's all kinds of questions about, you know, how frequently can you be in a different home or household? Can you be in two homes or households simultaneously? What if you go to a different home or household for a, an extended period of time? What if a member of your core household is on a long-term business trip and they're trying to stream while you're trying to stream. There are so many details that they have to get right or risk this kind of backfiring. In, in a way, I don't think the risk of it backfiring is that high because at the end of the day, they are dominant in this, this market. And even if people get cranky, they will probably come back periodically. Maybe they won't stay subscribed all year long, but I, I do think the reward for them at this point definitely outweighs the risk. Unfortunately, yeah. let me add, unfortunately for us. Right. I'm sure they'll find whichever solution is going to make Netflix the most money. But in terms of the details, the details that I really want to know here is how much does a sub account cost? How much does adding a new home cost for the U.S.? That's, you know, to me, what's going to be the, the big deal breaker as to whether it's worth it to go through these additional steps. Yeah, and we really, deal with really don't know. Yeah, exactly. Like, inconvenience is one thing. A hassle, uh, another test that they have tried in the past. This one is a bit further in the past, so uh, scrolling all the way back to 2021. In 2021, Netflix did a limited test where they used two-factor authentication, sending uh, text or email code to verify your account periodically. They did not continue with that. Uh, but I think they did not continue with that because they did not have the profile transfer option. They did not have the cheaper ad-supported tier available. And so they have the tools already to implement a really aggressive and annoying crackdown. And as someone who perhaps has shared a cable login with people who live in another state at, at some point in my life, a lot of cable providers are very aggressive with those two-factor authentication codes. You try to re-verify the ABC app so you can stream Abbott Elementary, hypothetically speaking, not something I would do, uh, you very well may be prompted to input a two-factor authentication code, even if it's only been a week since you opened that app. They really, really don't want you sharing some of those passwords. And Netflix is, I think, beginning to uh, look at that and go, well, if other people are doing it, how bad could the blowback be if we start doing it too? Greedy, greedy Netflix. Because how dare they want us to pay for their service we have been using for years? How dare they? Uh, they're making money. Well, that the gets us to Netflix. the continuation of the Netflix news. Do you want to take over? I need a break after all of this Whew, password talk. <gasps> they have 2.4 million new subscribers in quarter three, uh, which brings them to a total of about 223 million subscribers worldwide. Uh, dominating the streaming world. And that pretty much fully reverses the subscriber slump that they saw in the first two quarters this year. So, so in a way, all that doom and gloom that we were feeling over the summer for Netflix, perhaps for naught. Netflocalypse, we hardly knew ye. The Netflocalypse uh, is ending for Netflix, but just beginning for us. <laughs> That's smart. You know, put the, put the economic burden right onto your subscribers. Uh, what, what a fun time for the global recession to start. Um, but yeah, uh, 
via the New York Times, we know uh, the company generated about $1.4 billion in profit, uh, which is a 3% decrease from last year. Um, but if you're profiting $1.4 billion, I'd still say uh, Hastings and Sarandos are going to be pretty happy about that. Yeah, let's just point out, we are having a conversation about a profitable streaming service right now. That is like, I don't know, if you tuned into this podcast and we were secretly revealing the recipe for unicorn gumbo. I don't think many people would ever expect that. No, it's exciting. Uh, Though, in terms of stock prices, um, it's it's still down. Um, though it is starting to recoup. Um, and also at one point, was Netflix just massively overvalued, potentially? That's what I certainly have felt because, you know, they were valued like a tech company when they are mostly a media company. They produce media content and they stream it. We don't value Comcast or Warner Brothers Discovery nearly as highly as we were valuing Netflix. We, I mean, stonks. Uh, but th- the question there is now, If Netflix wants to continue growing, you know, because capitalism, all about growing, they need to uh, make more money. And how do you make more money when you are reaching the uh, saturation level of subscribers, especially in the U.S. and Canada, which they playfully refer to as you can in the biz. Uh, You can are some of your most uh, profitable customers, uh, but there are only so many of them. So you either need to uh, create more or find in a, an additional revenue stream for the existing customers. And wouldn't you know it, we have a Netflix with ads plan coming that will create an additional revenue stream for perhaps existing customers who downgrade to uh, Netflix with ads. But that brings us to the second thing they're going to do, which is create new customers by doing this password sharing crackdown in 2023. And the numbers that we could potentially see here, I mean, I get where they're coming from when I see these numbers. Because Netflix has said they believe 100 million people are password sharing. 100 million. And that's worldwide. The number that really gets me, especially as we talk about what's coming to the U.S. and Canada next year with passwords, account sharing, they have about, after Q3, 74 million UCAN accounts. And they believe that about 30 million people or users in UCAN are password sharing. So if every single one of those password sharing people, let's assume each one is just a single individual, because that also opens questions about, like, you might be sharing a password with a whole family, you know? You could be sharing a, a password with your in-laws, and, and that number then exponentially could grow. But let's let's keep it at 30 million password sharers out of 74 million accounts. If all 30 million got their own account, you would be increasing the number of Netflix accounts by almost 50% in your most profitable central demo. Your, your, you know, U.S. and Canada market. That's huge and and would look very good to Wall Street. It would, though that would be, you know, potentially just a one-time growth. My question is, this. I still think that this is a bit of a gamble because of those 30 million users, how many of them are going to say, oh, I use Netflix because I'm not paying for it, and if you make me pay for it, well, I'm already paying for Disney+. Plus. I'm getting the content I need there. Yeah. And, you know, another interesting wrinkle in this plan is the binge model. 
And Netflix did say in their financial call that they're committed to the binge model. They think it's a differentiator. They think that uh, shows like Dahmer have been such a big hit because they binge drop. And so everyone can just watch it all in a weekend. Uh, it, and, and certainly it makes for impressive numbers. When they drop a series and everyone binges it, the hours that that series gets watched in one condensed week of reporting is astronomical. And so you see Dahmer making these headlines as the most streamed show on TV. But that's, of course, because everyone's having a moment watching Dahmer, just like everyone had a moment watching Squid Game. And Squid Game's still popular, still very successful, but you don't see a lot of people, like, talking about Squid Game week to week. No, that was a moment, a binge moment. And I, I look at the Netflix plan here, and I think, okay, if they told me I have to get my own account, I would probably be basic with ads because that's the cheap option. And I would probably only sign up when there's a show that I want to binge. And then, thanks to the binge model, I would cancel like immediately right. whereas the Disney Plus week to week model with Marvel and Star Wars I at least have to subscribe for a few months unless I want to wait and binge it all at the end but then I've missed the the talk I've missed the discourse about the show I'll admit that I am not someone who's always the best at staying on top of what I need to cancel. And I think that, you know, all these subscription services know that. They know that there are people like me who are like, you know, <laughs> reminding themselves once a month for eight months that they need to delete Peacock uh, before <laughs> before they actually get around to canceling it. You know, I think that one of the things I'm going to work on going forward is cultivating the skill of canceling streaming services. I really, I, I this is my goal for the new year. One other piece of this Netflix plan that interests me for quarter four is that uh, Glass Onion coming out, I think November 23rd, right before Thanksgiving, is also going to open in 600 movie theaters, which is Netflix's first wide release in theaters they've had stuff in theaters for like short runs but this is their first collaboration with like the massive uh movie theater chains and i wonder if that will become a bigger part of their strategy going forward it probably a lot will depend on how glass onion does yeah, and they did make a really odd decision to emphasize in the earnings call that they're not going to be doing a lot of wide releases for movies going forward. They and and that seemed to kind of land like a, a like a lead weight in the filmmaking side of of the Netflix community. Not that the filmmaking side of the Netflix community gets a lot of what they want in general, I think. <laughs> um, but I, I thought it was really interesting for them to say, "No, Glass Onion is the exception, not the rule." If it makes them money, though, and they they want I think Oscar they'll try to replicate it. it. Yeah, they want the prestige. And you're right. If it's profitable in theaters, maybe they'll have a change of heart about movie theaters. Well, is anything profitable in movie theaters? Uh, only Marvel movies from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that is all I know. Making profit in movie theaters, everything, Top everywhere, Gun? all at once. Yeah. Top Gun. Yeah. Four movies. So That's so many. <laughs> all four of them. Uh, before we move on, I do want to touch on uh, somebody who you could see on Netflix very soon. We've been talking a lot about Trevor Noah and the changes coming to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Well, wouldn't you know it? Trevor Noah's third Netflix special is premiering on November 22nd. It's called 
I Wish You Would, and it was shot in Toronto in October of this year. There's no reason to think he's going to touch on any of what's going on at The Daily Show, but it is really interesting to see a really fresh stand-up special coming from him right away. Obviously, the deal with Netflix predates uh, the drama with his departure, but uh, I'm going to check it out, both because I love his stand-up and because this is the direction he seems to want to go. He wants to do more stand-up. He wants to, I think, free himself from the shackles of having to make uh, comedy about the day's news. Um, and this will be his 11th stand-up special overall. He, he's been doing this for so long. It is really easy to forget the huge career he had internationally before coming to The Daily Show. Yeah, it's really interesting to me, too, because I, th- this special in particular, because I always like it when he takes a more personal take. Like, I love hearing about his life and his life before he joined The Daily Show. His book is fantastic. I'm, like, really interested in that side of him that he doesn't get to show as much on The Daily Show. Also interesting to me that at one time we would have seen specials like this on Comedy Central. <laughs> And now that market has really gone uh, to Netflix, still to HBO a little bit, but really Netflix has become the home for this kind of work, um, which seems like another big loss for Comedy Central. Yeah. And, you know, uh, not on our show notes, but uh, occurred to me this week while browsing Paramount Plus, as you you do, you know, that evening browse through the tiles of Paramount Plus, your favorite Paramount related app. uh, Inside Amy Schumer is back on Mm. Paramount Plus as a Paramount Plus streaming exclusive, which is, I I think, a smart move to diversify the age demographics around Paramount Plus. Also, perhaps the gender demographics a bit uh, around Paramount Plus, because it's uh, bread and butter is a lot of Star Trek and things that might skew more male, just speaking purely from the demographic uh, advertising sense, so to speak. Uh, so I, I haven't checked it out yet, but I did have that moment, especially with all the talk we've had about Comedy Central recently, where I saw that tile and thought, wow, a real choice not to even entertain putting that on Comedy Central. Yeah, interesting. It also, ooh, because I have seen a few of the new sketches on Inside Amy Schumer, but I've only seen them on social so I kind of missed the fact that it was on Paramount+. Plus. Boy, that means they're not doing a great job with the messaging on the social campaign. The sketches were funny. Excited she's back. I will check it out on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, but before we actually get to what we were going to talk about, a little more Trevor Noah. I, I, we're, we're talking about him, so let's quickly update where the rumor mill is around the Daily Show replacement. Uh, because... Right now, Variety is reporting something I hate, which is that they might just replace him with like a rotating panel of uh, hosts. The the phrase they used was rotating array of hosts, which is a terrible idea. I hate this. I don't like it. Neither do I. I want a personality that I can get behind and get to know, and that will have that authoritative voice that can then skewer (laughs) the other news organizations, which is what The Daily Show once did so well. Now, I do have a theory here, because as I was reading about this and getting very upset at the idea, I did realize I had never finished reading a very good piece from Joseph Adelaine at Vulture. He's one of their top TV critics. I I bookmark so many Joseph Adelaine pieces and weeks later go, oh, right. And so here's one that he wrote right after Trevor announced his departure, but before we knew how soon it would be. And what he pointed out at that time, which I think is really smart, is that... uh, 
Comedy Central search for a replacement, a full-time replacement, if they really do pick one host, that takes months months mm-hmm. and then you have to kind of retool the show around their personality integrate them with the writer's room they're coming back in january and at the time before we knew how soon trevor was going to depart joseph adelaine said listen if trevor stays through the end of the current season which would be like through next summer they have plenty of time to find a replacement and have a smooth transition one host to a, a new host but if he's leaving before the end of the year which spoiler alert he's leaving in december that is not enough time in a traditional search for a late-night host. And that is actually very fair. They, If they're picking a panel because they don't want to rush into the wrong decision, okay, I, you know, you don't have a lot of options there. Do you take the show off the air for several months while you retool it? That's not a great idea either. Yeah, I mean, as long as the panel isn't operating also as an audition, I could see it work. That's that's you know, the because... icky potential part where and and a weird lens that the audience would potentially view it through. Like you really would want to be very clear about what this expectation is. It's an opportunity for the show to experiment, but you do not want it to just feel like it's a casting call because that is what Jeopardy felt like for like two straight years basically, and nobody feels like that was a good experience for the fans of Jeopardy. No, and Jeopardy's back with its new season and the ratings are down. Mm-hmm. So Jeopardy, which was, you know, so reliable for so long. And, you know, it might find its footing again. Oh, Ken Jennings, whatever. But, you know, but, I don't know. But, but better than Michael Richards. They made a lot of mistakes on that path. Oh, if if they have a, a smoother path than, than our friends at Jeopardy, uh, you know, that would be good. That would be good for The Daily Show. Yeah, Variety does say names are still being bandied about. Roy Wood Jr. still on the list, and Roy Wood Jr. did recently get new representation, which is uh, inside baseball talk for, you know, he he wanted a new agent, probably because he wants a change in his career. Wonder if that change involves hosting The Daily Show, or perhaps involves leaving The Daily Show. Both very possible. Uh, another name being bandied around is Jordan Klepper, which is a real deep cut in some ways. He's, he's obviously still uh, doing that kind of work, but uh, that's one of the oldest correspondents you could have named. However, I have to add my own wild speculation. I walked past Jason Jones on the street the other day, and I thought, hey, there was that one time where Jon Stewart got sick, and Jason Jones and Sam B sat in, and they hosted together, kind of in their correspondent characters, which was weird. And one of the reasons I don't really think you can promote a correspondent to the anchor desk there, but that was a different time, different era, and honestly, I wanted to stop and scream at Jason Jones, wait, what about you and Sam? You've done it. You, you, you should be you guys. I I mean, I love them both, so I wouldn't be disappointed with that. I think they're going to try and go for someone who's going to work for to appeal to a younger demographic. That... You can say it. We're old. We want them to pick We're an old, old person. I do. I Mo Rocca. Do. I, I want them to bring back Mo Rocca. Mo Rocca would be great. Bring in Lewis Black. Just the whole show. Just the whole show is a back in black. It's fine. a nice half hour. Well, I listeners, what, who do you want to see hosting The Daily Show? Anybody's fair game at this point. Our ideas are terrible. So email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. We will read your ideas on the air, like it or not. <sighs> I am ready to talk about 
a very interesting new streaming show that we watched this week. But in order to talk about it, I think we have to address the kind of elephant in the room, which is uh, this is a show that streams on AMC+, and we now know you can watch linearly on AMC, the cable network, though it, this being our first AMC Plus experience, we were not totally clear on what is an AMC Plus? Where can I watch this TV show? How do I watch it? And how much is this gonna cost me? And so I thought we should take a moment and introduce our audience to the um, wonderful world of AMC networks, and in particular, AMC Plus. Doesn't that just sound so exciting, Diane? Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, that's as good as it's going to get. So let's begin with AMC Plus facts. Uh, AMC Plus, exciting network, uh, started in June of 2020 as a streaming destination for what I assume is just um, uh, The Walking Dead and The Walking Dead. I would say Mad Men reruns, but those aren't on AMC. Obviously, the parent network of AMC Plus is AMC Networks, but AMC Networks is a lovely collection of networks, including AMC, IFC, WeTV, and Sundance TV. But wait, there's more, because AMC Networks is also the U.S. manager of BBC America, and therefore has a minority stake in BritBox, which is one of the main, many British streaming services where you can get your British shows here in the States. AMC Plus, all, AMC rather, also somehow owns Acorn, which is another British streaming service, and Shudder, which is the streaming service for horror fans. There's just so much going on in the AMC Networks universe that I did not appreciate until today. I had no idea all these services were linked. Right, um, and then I, I I set up my AMC Plus free trial to watch this week's show, and and immediately was presented with the option to watch content from Shutter in AMC Plus, and I, and I went, is this a hard bundle or are you pitching me on a soft bundle? I I honestly don't exactly know what I have yet, but what I do know is that in seven days I'm going to be charged eight ninety nine a month for the privilege of this uh very confusing streaming service, and that ah boy. That's a lot. It is a a high dollar sign, though I will say I like this show. I like this show. I would pay to watch this show. Yes. Though if I could watch it for free, I would much prefer. Yes. Which is an option, so to speak, if you have cable, which is not free. But, you know, if you have cable, you can watch this Sundays on the AMC network. It is not an AMC Plus exclusive, but AMC Plus is the exclusive streaming home. Unless, again, you have cable, in which case there is a different app on your streaming device called AMC, no plus, and that's the app for streaming content through your cable provider that aired on AMC. Oh boy, I now have both of those on my my streaming device, and I I honestly, like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to open to watch this. I can do it both ways. It's a good thing I like the show. Right? I... They are luring me in. It's like I, I'll be inviting AMC Plus into my home, perhaps to my great doom. As may happen with vampires. But you know, before we talk about the vampires, which, it, listen, listeners, if all you can think about are sexy vampires, don't worry. There are chapter markers in the episode. You can just go straight to the sexy vampires. But you know what you probably want to hear first? You probably want to hear what else you could be watching on AMC+. And that means it is time for a very special game that I'm calling AMC Plus or Not. <laughs> 
Yes, in this game, I am going to go through five questions. Uh, each one, you'll have four show titles, Diane, and uh, one of them is a real show that you can watch on AMC+. It may also air on AMC uh, or a, perhaps a British channel like the BBC, but the streaming home that you can choose to stream it here in the U.S. is AMC+. Uh, are you excited? Are you ready to find out? Is it AMC+, or not? Of course I am excited, but I would also like to encourage our listeners to play along at home with me because these games are hard. <laughs> I want you to really experience how, how hard they are so that you have some empathy um, with with me. <laughs> I think Perhaps. that's fair. Uh, ready, Some appreciation listeners? of Chris's cruelty. <laughs> Join us on this. You know, it's spooky season, okay? I can be a little cruel in spooky season. It's, it's here to scare you into paying attention to question number one. Question number one. Again, one of these is a real series on AMC+. Moonfall. Moonhaven. Moon Garden. Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom, the animated series. <laughs> uh... Moonhaven? That's correct. Moonhaven. Moonhaven is a sci-fi series set in a quasi-dystopian community on the moon. That is on AMC+, Plus, renewed for a second season. Very exciting. Uh, question number two. Again, one of these is a real series. Gangs of Stockholm? Gangs of Dublin? Gangs of London? Gangs of Berlin? Gangs of London? Once again... You got it. Gangs of London is a British action crime drama following the struggles between rival gangs and other criminal organizations in present-day London, loosely based on the 2006 video game of the same name. There you go. Everything uh, you ever wanted to know about Gangs of London. Uh, question number three. This is going to hurt. Life hurts. The pain is real. Or The Hurt Locker, the animated series. One of those is a real series you can stream on AMC+. Which one is it? This is going to hurt? Yes, that is correct. That is a BBC show uh, produced uh, a co-pro between BBC and AMC uh, starring Ben Wishaw. Ooh, love him. Right, me too. Question number four. We're going to get to The Walking Dead now, of course. One of these is a real Walking Dead series you can stream on AMC+. Is it Fight the Walking Dead, Flee the Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, or Scare the Walking Dead? Fear the Walking Dead? That is correct. Fear the Walking Dead. I, I did know that one, too. What I did not realize is that show is in its seventh season. That is a spinoff of The Walking Dead that has so many seasons. I, I, I'm scared to look up how many seasons The Walking Dead is in. I know it's ending, but that, oh boy, if we're at seven for this spinoff, whew, that's a lot of zombies. That is a lot of walkers. Oh, I'm sorry. Correct. Correct terminology. Uh, do not at me, uh, listeners. I know what a walker is. I just don't care for them. And that brings me to one more Walking Dead spinoff question. Which of these is another real uh, Walking Dead spinoff series that you can watch on AMC Plus? Is it Tales of the Walking Dead, History of the Walking Dead, Rise of the Walking Dead, or The Walking Dead, the animated series? Now, this one, I kind of want to be the animated series, but I think it might be Tales of the Walking Dead. 
That's correct. It's Tales of the Walking Dead. It is unfortunately live action. It's an anthology series set in the Walking Dead universe. Uh, that's it. You you aced it. Five for five, Diane. That means I have a bonus question for you and our listeners, who I'm sure are acing this game too. Uh, this one, very exciting, because it does touch on Tatiana Maslany, who we talked about last week in She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Uh, Tatiana Maslany, of course, famous for uh, her breakthrough role on Orphan Black. Orphan Black is coming back in 2023, and no, Tatiana Maslany is not in the cast. But it is a new show from the co-creator of Orphan Black, John Fawcett, and it has a title... Which of these is the title of that show coming to AMC Plus in 2023? Is it Orphan Black Rebirth, Orphan Black Beginnings, Orphan Black Echoes, or Orphan Black Evolution? Orphan Black Evolution? I'm so sorry. I knew I'd get you with that one. It's Orphan Black Echoes. We don't know a ton about it, but we do know it's starring Kristen Ritter. So I'm I'm there. Ooh, fantastic. Right? Oh, Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'd check that out. I would too. And you know what else I would check out? I would check out the review that we are about to do of this week's show. We watched Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire on the very streamer. We are currently talking about AMC+. Plus. So buckle up, everyone, because spooky season is really here as we get to this week's review. Yes, as I said at the top of the episode, I want to suck various parts of the bodies of the stars of this show because, oh boy, this is a horny, horny show, and I love everything about that. We are talking, of course, about Anne Rice's interview with the vampire on AMC and AMC+. Plus. Are you as um, enthused about this as I am, Diane? Oh, I am. I like this show quite a lot. Uh, more than I was anticipating. Same here. I honestly, we, we we thought about it for a couple of weeks, and then this week, being uh, Halloween coming up, we thought, why not? I, I was not going in with this much enthusiasm. No, nor was I. Um, it really reminds me of the show Hannibal. Did you ever watch that? You know, I never uh, got deep into it, but it, it was a super sensual and intriguing show, especially for network at the time. Yeah, and it's uh, similarly a very beautiful show. Like, the aesthetics of the visuals are just so gorgeous. Yeah, and we should say... And also, you know, like homoerotic. Uh, absolutely. We, we, we should give you some background, listener, if you haven't been following the vampire news. Uh, this show, you know, based on the popular Interview with Vampire books by Anne Rice, which you then may also know as a movie, this is, uh, I'm not steeped in that history. So what I know is what this show is about, which is a vampire living in 1910s New Orleans as he is uh, turned into a vampire and seduced by Lestat, the French vampire, whose name is familiar. That's what I got for you. Yeah, it's also got a great framing device, which I'm really enjoying, which takes place in 2022 and acknowledges the pandemic, I think, quite artfully, which I found very refreshing, um, in which uh, Eric Bogosian plays a journalist uh, named Malloy, who is interviewing the vampire, uh, 
so that they move mostly in the flashback, but there is also this frame, which I find is working really well for me. Yeah, and and it's the kind of framing device that can go very badly, I think. And this is a show where the framing device works extremely well. I love the scenes between Eric Bogosian and our, our star, essentially, um, Jacob, Jacob Anderson. Anderson. Thank you. Uh, Jacob Anderson, who viewers may remember as Grey Worm from Game of Thrones, he is transformative in this role. And what I especially appreciate is he's very different in his scenes with Eric Bogosian in the present day versus his scenes in 1910's New Orleans with Lestat. And and important to keep in mind, he's a vampire, so he hasn't physically aged. He looks the same, but the way he—his bearing— his, the, the manner of the man, or the, the former man, uh, th- is very different and very engaging. And the way the story bounces back and forth feels natural and also builds a little bit of tension in certain moments. There's a moment in episode two. And did we say we're watching two episodes? We watched two episodes. Spoiler alert if you made it this far for two episodes. Uh, in episode two, there is a scene uh, in 1910's New Orleans where uh, he is holding his nephew, his baby nephew. He's still trying to balance vampire life with human life, which I really appreciate as kind of like a workplace comedy vibe, especially coming off of She-Hulk. There's a bit of that where it's much darker and much more, you know, uh, threatening because he may murder people he loves as a as a newly minted vampire. But there is something about uh, him balancing his, you know, work life as a vampire and his personal life with his family who doesn't like that he's turned into to a very strange man who only visits them at night. Uh, that That is really fun and juicy, uh, for lack of a better word. And there's a moment in episode two where he's holding his baby nephew and has a craving to eat his baby nephew. And that is when they cut back to Eric Bogosian going, well, did you eat the baby? And the way they draw that out, they don't draw it out for too long. It's not a cliffhanger where you're like, I have to tune in next week to find out if he ate the baby. But it really... It, accentuates the tension that he is experiencing in that moment in the scene in 1910 and then gives us a bit of a jump scare when they reveal what really happened. It did. It also was very humorous in a pitch black way. I I found myself kind of tickled by it. Bogosian adds a real wry, cynical humor to the show that I, you, the show could work without the framing device, but that sense of humor, that levity that gives you permission to enjoy some of the darkness is really thanks to Bogosian and the framing device. I also think it enter, it adds a bit of tension for me in terms of the plot, because so much of the flashback, we see this central relationship forming between the main character and Lestat. But Lestat is not, at least not yet, in 2022. We haven't seen him in this world. So what has happened to this relationship is something I know that I've been trying to track. So I'm excited for that part as well. Yeah. And so, you know, the overall setup as we see it then is that we have Louis Dupont. He is Jacob uh, Anderson's character, our, our main vampire. Uh, and Louis Dupont, we know, is still alive and well in 2022 and is filthy rich living in Dubai uh, with a, 
a bevy of servants uh, at his every beck and call. He no longer murders. He has apparently been murder-free since 2000, we learn in episode two. (laughs) And instead, he has served blood that has been drained from other sources. Uh, Volunteered blood in one case. There's a really interesting scene where one of his man-servant people allows him to just take a little drink. Doesn't kill him, doesn't doesn't take all his blood, just takes a little drink while Eric Bogosian just watches. And they have a nice conversation about things to do in Dubai. Yeah, that was a great scene, too. I like that uh, in the first episode, they introduced that um, device where the vampires can take a little bit of your blood without killing you. Um, It's unclear if perhaps Louis has done that to... uh, Malloy, the Bogosian character, because he also has a scar on his neck. So another bit of what happened there. And they have history. This is not their first interview with the vampire. Part of the setup in the the pilot is uh, Bogosian's character, Malloy, getting a mysterious package of tapes, little cassette tapes, from Louis Dupont. And he listens to a little bit of them, and we realize they're old interviews from the 70s. And we get a bit more detail through their reunion in Dubai that in the 70s, Malloy was a drug-addicted, kind of uh, gave me the vibes of like a Hunter S. Thompson-style journalist, a kind of gonzo journalist. And so he was uh, cruising gay bars in like San Francisco, looking to score drugs, according to Malloy, and uh, met Louis Dupont there in the 70s and interviewed him about being a vampire in the 70s. And what we do know is that the interview ended badly and that uh, Louis did attack Malloy, and that has something to do with that bite mark. Malloy is not a vampire, definitely not a vampire, does have Parkinson's and does have some uh, issues arising from that we can already see. But uh, what we don't really know is, yeah, the extent to which their physical altercation maybe involved drinking some of Malloy's blood, maybe? Maybe. Yeah, I I think they're hinting toward that as a possibility. But this show does like to play with your expectations of what's going to happen. We saw that a lot in the baby moment, (laughs) which it it really was suspenseful as much as it was, you know, um, also just an interesting moment of character development. I was really like, oh, my God, did he do it? You have to tell me now. Yeah. Yeah, because he really could have in that moment. It would not have derailed where the show seems to be going. No, but I'm glad he didn't. Me because too. I do like this character. I'm interested in his ethical dilemmas. Um, we really see that he cares about his family, even though he has an increasingly strained relationship with them. A big part of the first two episodes was his relationship with his brother, Paul. And Paul seems to be suffering from some form of schizophrenia, perhaps, Uh, or maybe not, because this is a sort of heightened world. But he thinks that God is speaking to him through birds. So it seems that perhaps he is suffering from mental illness. But I could also see maybe in this world that God speaks to people, you know, in strange ways since vampires do. You know, to your Mm -hmm. note earlier about the pandemic being acknowledged, it really does seem to strike me as uh, our world very much as it is 
plus vampires and not a lot of extra stuff. Not like uh, what we do in the shadows, where our world plus vampires will also then include wraiths and werewolves and all kinds of other creatures. This really just seems to be a more traditional vampire story in in that way, in the way in that there are only vampires and no other undead creatures. Agreed. Yeah, I I do think that that will be the case. That um, series True Blood, that vampire series, I feel like really went off the rails when they started introducing all those other, you know, uh, spooky, spooky characters. So I hope that that they'll stick with uh, this world plus vampires. But because of the centrality of the church, I could believe that like this world exists and features God. Could be, that God is real in this in this world. Because certainly the devil, in some me- method, is real here. We see Lestat do some very, very brutal, very violent things, and we really see Lestat reveal that he is uh, comfortable with himself as an apex predator. That he sees that as his uh, role, essentially, in the like human ecosystem, and he is trying to teach Louis what it's like to be that and how to do it well without getting caught. Because what I do like about it being really narrowly focused on vampires is they have a huge weakness. You can very easily kill a vampire with sunlight, and they follow those rules in in this show. We see that, you know, a little bit of time in the sun starts to burn their skin away, and it would not take long for them to completely perish. And so that, that adds a heightened tension to say, yes, you can... You can move faster than anyone can visibly see. These people can manipulate time, essentially, by moving at speeds that are, you know, incomprehensible to to a mortal. Uh, But if I drag you out to the beach, you'll die. And so there's a very real threat that if they murder the wrong person and get the wrong attention, they really could be killed. They could be. And perhaps Lestat has been. Right. We don't know. We don't know. And definitely the Um, way that uh, Louis is recounting the story, you do get the sense that he does not miss Lestat. Perhaps it's a more complicated emotion than, than that. But you get the sense that either Lestat is dead or he and Lestat had a big falling out. They have this teacher-student relationship and also this romantic and sexual relationship, which is the other half of how the first two episodes are progressing, I'd say. Um, And I found that relationship interesting, too. I mean, obviously, they're both handsome vampires, so that was part of it, too. Um, Sam Reed plays Lestat, and he's really unsettling. Um, The vampires have these, like, uh, clear blue eyes, almost like like greenish blue they're kind of hazy looking um that give them this really ethereal and uh frightening (laughs) frightening appearance uh which i i enjoyed that um i i think this performance is really strong too yeah i really do i i wasn't it took me a, an episode or two to really warm up to Sam Reed's Lestat, partly because Lestat is, a, at, at times, a very off-putting character on purpose. So that, mm-hmm. once I kind of settled into who are these characters and how how do they work, how do they bounce off each other in the world of the show, I, I saw what Sam Reed is doing, and I think he's doing it really, really well. Uh, Jacob Anderson, he, he navigates this extremely dramatic motion, emotional arc in the pilot in particular with a, a level of proficiency as an actor that I, I cannot recall 
somebody I, I'm speechless in some ways his performance is so good in these first two episodes and in particular the way he has to navigate the really tricky relationship they're creating and the writers to their credit acknowledge this because the risk is you conflate the uh, becoming a murderer becoming a vampire becoming an undead apex predator with becoming yourself and that means coming out as a gay man in the south in the 1910s let alone a black gay man in the south in the 1910s and and that is its own extremely loaded thing and if you conflate that completely with the vampire side you're not doing it justice and you risk uh you know falling into some really negative gay tropes i think and they they acknowledge Mm -hmm. that really well and he performs it really well and there is a line from uh the the framing device when he's back in the present with eric bogosian where he says death rebirth coming out homicide too many firsts for one night and that's as he's recounting the night that Lestat turns him into a vampire, which is also the night that he, like, fully embraces his homosexuality. It's also the night that they murder some priests. <laughs> a lot happens. And I think it's really important that they put, a, they put a real pin on it. And they say, look, that was overwhelming. And it wasn't just one thing. It was all of these things that he now has to navigate. And so when we get into episode two, we see he's really pulled in so many different directions. It's not just oh, I'm pulled between my human family and my new vampire life. He's pulled between wanting to murder people, wanting to save his family, wanting to help the people in his neighborhood that he has grown up with and is now in a position to actually help because Lestat is loaded and he is definitely uh, using him as a sugar daddy and Lestat is happy to do so. And then there's the gay thing. There's all of these things. And then the racial politics of 1910s New Orleans. There, And they do not just mush them all together into one ball of identity. What am I? They really do uh, each one of those paths justice, at least in the setup, which honestly, in my mind, is maybe the hardest uh, part of that that process. Now you have room to breathe and you don't have to explore each of them simultaneously. You can kind of take your time and explore them one plot at a time if you want. I agree. And I think the writing sometimes does veer into what I would call, uh, for lack of a better word, cheesiness. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's very floral. They're embracing the fact that um, uh, Louis is narrating what happened to him with Lestat to Malloy. And so because he's using this narration, sometimes it can go into like a very grand place a big pronouncements about life and death and all these things. So the moments that they put in humor have been really helpful for me to like make it so that I'm not so corny <laughs> that mm-hmm. I'm like really losing track. And also these performances being so nuanced and strong and the chemistry between the two leads being so strong really also helps me, you know, sometimes I think it's the, the performances are elevating the writing. Yeah. At this point. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. And we haven't seen where the the story is going yet. And so much of the writing, uh, how I feel about the writing, will hinge on where it goes and how deftly they continue to navigate these themes. Because, again, there is a real risk that you just conflate them all or that you jump the shark in some way by introducing werewolves. You know, there, there are many ways that it could go sideways. But the confidence out the gate is really impressive. And I think they know that they're balancing a bit of romance novel style writing with a more grounded, gritty 
cynical again or world weary sense of humor. Uh, it is there's a there's a dark comedy vibe that is reminiscent of something like Barry, right? It, it's mm-hmm. in, not in the same genre, but there are moments where they are, you know, throwing a corpse into an incinerator that feel very reminiscent of Barry. And that is the the strange, strange alchemy of this show, that both of those tones can exist and that it can be like really hot and sexy. Yeah, and I agree in saying that I'm not knocking the writers because I think they have to and they have a lot of world building they had to do pretty quickly in these first two episodes. I just think because we have such strong actors, number one, it hasn't felt super exposition-y when they're like explaining what the rules of vampire life are. And also when they're in that romance novel kind of world, I think they're doing that quite intentionally and successfully. But again, it doesn't feel so much like, okay, now I'm watching, you know, a romance novel. Now I'm watching Bridgerton season one. No, I never quite feel like I'm watching Bridgerton season one uh, in a good way, I think. And part of that is you you know that Lestat is bad news in some way, but you also know that Lestat genuinely seems to love or care for Louis and that Lestat has helped Louis discover something really important about himself. Louis is gay. That is, or he is at least queer. He is not a straight man in the South in the 1910s. So he, he acknowledges this and he tells us this and that he's eventually come to terms uh, and accepted himself as a gay vampire in the many, 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 many years since 1910. Uh, so there is part of you that wants to root for them. You want Louis to find love. You want Louis to embrace his sexuality. However, it is extremely complicated in the fact that this is essentially an abusive relationship. This is somebody uh, taking mm-hmm. taking his existence and changing it without his consent, you know? And again, this is where it can get dicey, and they could have really mushed things together in an icky way. But what was really, again, really well executed in the pilot in particular was that I did not feel uh, the—I didn't feel icky about uh, the way that Lestat helped uh, Louis come out. I did feel icky about the way that Lestat— turned Louis into a vampire without his permission. And that is the the tricky balance and the weird liminal, I think, place they want to put you as a viewer, where you're like, I both want this and I don't. I'm both in favor of it and I'm, a, I'm really against it. Yeah, I like that too. I think that's being done very well. And I think that their acknowledgement that Lestat is somewhat sadistic is important that they that they acknowledge that very upfront. There's a scene um, where there's this tenor who hasn't been uh, performing um, an opera that he takes him to see particularly well. And so um, Lestat decides to uh, kill the tenor and he's brought him back to their home and he is sort of torturing him and humiliating him and you know Lestat acknowledges that he enjoys that that's the fun of it for him yeah it's the um, fun of the and, hunt right right he really likes that part he's bringing louis to a place of acknowledging that within himself though what we see of louis in 2022 is that he no longer hunts I mean, he, he's certainly still subsisting on something. So exactly how much of that is human is still unclear. But, you know, he's he's not a killer anymore. So seeing how Louis going to reach that place, I'm pretty excited about. And there's also a hint there that 
the vampires of the world are perhaps planning some major uh, attack on humans, um, which, you know, could also be very exciting. Yes, that is such an intriguing place that they they go in the framing device. And I'm interested in it partly because they didn't need to go there right away. They could have revealed that a lot later. And I'm glad i think that they revealed that uh, basically in in the setup of the series that part of the reason it seems that louis wants to now try to really do the interview with with uh, malloy because again they did these interviews in the 70s but nothing came of it malloy acted like it never happened malloy had a whole career that we find out louis has followed and now louis is like hey you've had this whole career you never mentioned that time you interviewed a vampire what gives? And of course, Malloy's like, well, I wouldn't be successful if I went around talking about vampires because they'd all think I'm crazy. But now I'm at the end of my career. I have Parkinson's. I'm seeing the writing on the wall. I'd kind of like, you know, to to revisit this in a way, basically. And Louis is, Louis, you know, we don't know exactly what his motivation is for wanting to rehash and redo the interview with Malloy. We know he's been following Malloy's career. We know he's he's got a plan about this. But it is it is you know, this question of why now? And so the fact that they give us a potential answer right out the gate, you know, uh, that the vampires may be planning an uprising and that this may be Louis trying to warn, you know, humanity that they're at risk, that that is one possible explanation for why now. I bet we'll get other possible explanations for why now as well. You know, I we, we talked about the fear that the show could jump the shark, and I definitely think a sudden vampire uprising in the present-day framing device would potentially jump the shark. But I also think that's probably not what they're looking to do, or at least not until the series finale. Uh, so I think it's more a question of they raise this as the obvious answer for why now, but what are the other reasons why now? Absolutely. And also, I think that raises a question of, is Louis a reliable narrator? Uh, Because he may be saying, look, I'm not a part of this. I just need to warn you all. But is he safe? Is Malloy safe in his home? We don't really know that. Like, has he suppressed any killer inside of himself? We, We don't know for sure. We only have his word for it. And at the same time, it seems like a big part of the why now, I think, is also on Malloy's end, that he is approaching his own mortality and has had to face it over the past couple of years. And um, that meeting with a man who is immortal is also enticing for him, perhaps. So, yeah. ooh, lots I, there, at stake here. There really Another lots bad at stake. Pun mm, yes. Yes, I was going to say it's very juicy. It's all of these things. Uh, And it is, I'm sold. That's it. You know, I'm hooked. I I was not expecting uh, to be hooked. This genre is not my favorite in some ways. And to be honest, I don't love a lot of period stuff set in this time frame. Like these shows that are set around the turn of the the 20th century, often I just look at that time period and I go, yeah, not that interesting to me personally. But they've painted a really fascinating picture of New Orleans at the time. They've created this uh, 1910s, 1915 era world that I actually do want to go back to, partly because it is so beautifully rendered and the performances of not just the main cast, but all of the ancillary characters just feel really authentic. It It, it is a really surprisingly uh, 
engrossing depiction of that era for somebody who doesn't really gravitate towards that kind of uh, genre. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it has the potential to get better with each episode if they can keep this tone going um, because that world is so fun and they can keep, you know, developing this fun New Orleans world. But also, like, you know, we find out that, oh, he goes off to Italy in an episode. You know, we could really go anywhere with this show. I think it has that sort of global appeal um, that for me, it seems like something that could be for people who aren't into this genre, but also for people who love spooky stuff. It's still spooky and scary enough to hold those viewers to, I think. Yeah, I think so. So listen, if you uh, like a little bit of spooky scary, a little bit of genre period piece, or maybe you just love some sexy men sucking each other's necks, well, you know what? All of those things and more could be yours on Anne Rice's interview with the vampire on AMC and AMC+. Plus. I'm going to keep watching, and I think Diane will too. Oh, absolutely. I'm in. Mm, even if it means I have to pay $8.99 for one to two months, I'm willing to make that sacrifice for you, dear listener. And if you have other shows you'd like me to make a sacrifice for, Diane and I are game. We will sign up for any free trial the streaming universe has to offer and then forget to renew it and curse the day we ever agreed to do that. But we will do it for you. So email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. Let us know what you want us to watch. And until then, Diane, I want you to keep streaming so sorry for that (laughs) how dare they want us to pay for their service we have been using for years how dare they